2: The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Monday, February 8th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Are you like me? Do you like the anchor of the CBS Evening News with Nora O'Donnell, namely Nora O'Donnell? But do you not want to see her on a mountain with Beavis and Butthead? So I'm talking about the Super Bowl, obviously what and the ads played during the super bowl and there was one actually it was like a series there's patrick stewart on a mountain james corden was on a snowmobile dora the explorer was there on a mountaintop but there this ad for the paramount streaming service there i noticed in one of the iterations of the ads a blink and you miss her cameo By the anchor of the CBS Evening News, Nora O'Donnell. Sure, you came to the Paramount streaming service to get your fix of Dora and Benny if they're going to solve their mystery. But after that, we're going to need someone really competent to throw it to Jeff Pegues with the details. Wait, if Nora O'Donnell is there, is CBS News and Elections Survey Director Anthony Salvano also on the mountain? Perhaps at a lower altitude... Uh, rocky crag that he repelled down after he got his crampons entangled in a Quinnipiac survey of registered voters. Nora O'Donnell was on a pantsuit on a mountain. Also, another mountain-related ad was this one. How did a blind man conquer Mount Everest? How did a kid who loved NASCAR, just knowing his heart, one day he'd win the Brickyard and Daytona 500? Okay, let's work backwards. The answer to the NASCAR guy is he didn't know. He didn't actually know. Everyone who gets to that level of racing or sports believes in themselves, and every race has a winner. So, ipso facto, the winner will have believed in himself. Now, the blind mountain climber thing, that is a legitimate question. The guy who did it, Eric Weyhenmayer, actually climbed the highest peak on seven continents. An amazing, amazing achievement. But what is this all leading up to? For those who believe in their dream of a new home, Guaranteed Rate is a mortgage lender with all the right to... Oh, okay. Okay, now this pushes aside the what is Nora O'Donnell doing on a mountain question in my mind so that my mind can dwell on the question, what the hell does a blind mountain climber have to do with mortgages? The answer apparently is belief. If you believe in yourself, you could get a mortgage. Wait, don't you have decent credit? No, just belief. Mortgages are a belief system more than a financial instrument. I believe I can pay back a jumbo loan at 5.3% over 30 years. I believe that's what caused the mortgage crisis. I really did not know where the Blind Mountain Climber ad was headed. I had heard Scientology bought time. So I was worried, oh my God, the Scientologists got their hooks into Eric Weinhenmayer. Oh no. So we did dodge that bullet, luckily enough, unlike poor Nora O'Donnell, who was sideswiped by a speeding James Corden. Elaine Kihano will be filling in until oxygen tanks are depleted. On the show today, I spiel about George Schultz, a centenarian, a secretary of state, and a counterpoint to everything that is wrong with modern Republicans. But first, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed is a podcaster, a public servant, a politician, a physician. That would all be alliteration if physician was spelt with the hard H. And you knew he was a physician. That's why I called him Dr. Abdul el Syed. He is out with a new book about Medicare for All, and I follow his America Dissected podcast on the Crooked Media Network. The doctor stops by for the first of two talks about fighting the pandemic and America's miserable public health status. Abdul El-Sayed up next. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, Sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block and indeed there is. And me and Jay, the neighbor, and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say, oh, I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or Perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. Abdul El-Sayed is oh so many things. He was executive director of the Detroit Health Department from 2015 to 2017. He ran for governor, did very well in the Democratic primary. He has a podcast with Crooked Media. Those are the Pod Save America folk. And wait, how could a guy like this not have a substack? I think today on the day we're interviewing him, he just
1: announced his substack. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> What's it called? It's called the incision. Folks can go to incision.substack.com. <laughs>
2: okay, so that was, a blatant, that was a blatant piece of promotion. But I did want to have you on because you do have uh, your name and voice in so many different media. So why not, why not this one, this specific
1: one? Welcome to the gist. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. I'm uh, excited to be here.
2: So as I've uh, I've followed your work, which uh, I was aware of you and reading what you were writing pre-pandemic, you were the sort of person who would always talk about medical issues and epidemics, but you were very, very conscious of social media ac- epidemics and information epidemics. And my first question is... In what way is social media contagion and the way we get information, how is that crashing into the realities of this novel coronavirus in ways that maybe 10 years ago, people well trained in public information and public health would never have anticipated?
1: You know what, Mike, what this pandemic is teaching us every single day is the fact that the social is biological what's happening around us, the circumstances in which we live, the decisions we make about how we allocate resources, all of those things shape what ultimately happens in ourselves. And it's interesting, right? I spent a lot of time in medical school learning about the bad decisions that cells make. And it turns out that a lot of that has a lot more to do with the bad decisions that we as people make and our societies make because of that. And Right now, in particular, when you think about these two concepts of virality, right, there's, of course, an actual virus that is going viral in the population. But part of the reason it can do that is because we've got disinformation that is constantly going viral in our information ecosystem and the capacity for social media uh, to both aggregate people who believe or are susceptible to believing misinformation and then the ability to drive that disinformation via algorithmic sorting and, and bot amplification and all these things that happen uh, on social media to corrupt our information ecosystem has created a space where we're seeing the real virality and the online virality uh, crash into each other in real time. And, you know, you think about masks, right? In in, in the context of this pandemic, masks have uh, been memified into a a referendum on whether or not we believe in liberty. And uh, lockdowns have, have been munified into a referendum on whether or not we believe in business. And, you know, we're seeing how this disinformation is undercutting our capacity to interfere against the actual virus. And, um, and so, uh, you know, we're seeing these things touching each other in a really profound way, in an, unfortunately, a really deadly way.
2: Now, that's all true, but here are a couple of um, counter examples. So in the country of Saudi Arabia, something like 80% of people are on Twitter, but there's 100% compliance. Why? Because even though they have a lot of viral media, they have a, a, a dictatorship, uh, a kingdom. And when the king, when, well, it's not the king, it's the crown prince, says do something, that thing is done. So that's that's one example. Another is for all the horrors of social media and the ability to spread disinformation, it, of course, also spreads information. And there's, <laughs> it's weird that we have the pejorative form of information, disinformation, but not a positive form. So let's call it accurate information. And if you add up, All of the benefits, um, telling people where the vaccine is available, getting people information at a moment's notice. Would we know as much about the variant if we weren't connected, for instance, through social media? I wonder if the net net, as the business guys would say, of the information we live in has made our response to the pandemic better or worse. As a whole, if we were living in a time of three networks and a morning and afternoon newspaper, do you think that fewer people would be dying of the coronavirus?
1: I'll be honest with you. I mean, it, it is really hard to decouple just because the information age is, is in this moment in which we live is so fundamental to a lot of the other advents of technologies that have facilitated our our response to the pandemic. But I would I would say this, that the very example that you gave us with Saudi Arabia and or even China demonstrates that the ability to drive a a singular message is is really still quite important. That being said, I would rather live in a country every day that uh, gives me the right to free thought and an exposition, even though um, that means that we need to have the responsibility that that comes with those rights to use those things appropriately. And I think what we're trying to do at this point is to to ask where the balance is. I'm not going to lie to you, though, right? I actually think that in so many ways, our response to this pandemic, even if it's if it's facilitated a substantial amount more information has actually been far less clear and, and, and far more noisy because of the the way that social media works to proliferate all kinds of information, and especially the bad kind, and so unfortunately, uh, we have <laughs> we have we have misused the the rights that we have and failed the responsibilities that come with those rights in this moment. And I do think that we have a responsibility to step back and ask, what is it about our information system and the incentives that drive social media usage and social media corporations that have taken away the kind of clarity that we would have wanted in a time of national crisis like this one. And again, it's not just the public health crisis. It's also the backdrop of a political crisis. And you saw these things crash into each other as well, right? And we saw that, you know, come to a crest on, on January 6th at our nation's capital in the form of a riotous insurrection. But for the year before that, it was fomenting um, a uh, a full-on bolt from basic scientifically driven public communication around a very deadly disease that was being communicated amongst, amongst us. And so we really are, I think, in a moment where there is a crisis of communication. And uh, I think we have failed to act responsibly around the rights we have around our ability to communicate and, and say what we believe and say what we think. Do the
2: people who do communication, public health communication, I know that there are challenges, say, in the developing world where people are reticent to get injections or vaccines, and it is known that you have to explain perhaps to the people of Cameroon the benefit of being treated for Ebola. But I don't know that it was conceived that in the developed world, quote unquote, in America, that that same kind of handholding and rebuttal of disinformation would ever occur. It seems to me a totally different skill set of the people who are in the public health field in the United States and one they couldn't have anticipated as recently as a decade ago.
1: Yeah, I'm going to say a couple of things about that, Mike. I think number one, this pandemic has forced us to deal with a reckoning around the, the fact that for a long time we had confused wealth with reason and enlightened thought and you know our country i can't can't agree sorry to interrupt god bless
2: you for saying that because i can't agree with you more i get so upset when people say things like in a country like america in america the richest country in the world and then they talk about an example of the pandemic the vaccine rollout being botched or the pandemic running rampant and it Angers me to think exactly what you just put into words that we've conflated wealth with something else. But sorry to interrupt. Go ahead.
1: No, I I agree entirely. I'll tell you, I grew up between my suburban childhood home in uh, southeast Michigan in the suburbs of Detroit and um, Alexandria, Egypt, where my father immigrated from. And uh, I'll tell you that those folks are just as smart and just as thoughtful as we are here, the difference is access to resources. And a lot of a lot of that is because of our country's own policies that have robbed a lot of those societies of the means of being able to build out uh, the kind of economy that we take for granted here. The second point, though, is that I think this is going to be a moment where public health communicators really have to step back and take stock of the information system in which we are operating, because I think in the past the assumption in public health communication was you just need to share the facts, right, and you need to give people the data, and people will make really smart decisions. And th- the problem, right, is that unfortunately, right, the facts and the data are just not enough. We have to give people the the context. We have to be able to put our facts and our data in a narrative, and we have to get a lot better at defensive communication um, from people who. Uh, want to systematically disinform as a function of their own need or want to uh, profit on the back end of that. And so I don't think public health was really quite equipped with the ability and the nuanced communication capacity to take on this issue in real time uh, in the way that this pandemic has forced us. And I think those two issues, right, our conflation of, of wealth and reason and uh, the failure of the public health uh, community to communicate as in a nuanced way about this pandemic in an in inspiring way, I think have um, have in some respects sort of forced a, a real moment of pause. And I think for a long time, we'll be thinking about what this means for us uh, as a society and what it will take for us to fortify the public's health in the future.
2: Right, and on the one hand, you could excuse public health communicators because we've never had a pandemic like this in terms of the medicine, but also in terms of the president who was president then and the way we communicate. However, I would say if you look at the other scientific discipline of climate change. People have studied a lot about communicating about climate change. And that thing of, hey, if we just put the facts out there, the facts, people will attend to the facts and people will recognize what are the true facts. It doesn't work, doesn't work nearly as well as we need it to work. And it's not as if, you know, by now, by 2021, we realize this and there are different, there's schools of thought about how to communicate about climate change that aren't just a recitation of facts. And yet when it came to this, no less an emergency, but a more acute emergency, no one seems to have learned the lesson in that somewhat related discipline.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, and I, I say this, of course, as a public health communicator, right? I, I, um, I know this I am, why I'm asking you these questions. Yeah, I, yes, <laughs> I, I am. I'm. 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 Um, I'm not trying to take my my colleagues to the woodshed. I'm just. I, I'm saying that all of us, I think, we 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 all need to go spend some time and, and be thinking about it. But you're right. I think. I think that is a a really important parallel, and it goes to show the fact that, unfortunately, from a discipline's perspective, we in public health have, I think, done two things poorly. Number one, we have not taken the time to step outside of our own Issue area and 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 take notes about the approach that we we take to things like climate change or other forms of risk communication. And second, I think we have failed to account. And I would say this also about about climate change communicators too. We have failed to account for the changing trend in polarization and the way that politicization of basic facts has changed the way that people are uh, either receptive to or completely opposed to the information that you're sharing. Um, And on that second point around, um, you know, political communication, I actually, unfortunately think that, you know, as we take this, these issues on, we're going to have to balance, you know, speaking in political ways, uh, lowercase p political ways, while still trying to depoliticize basic fact because of the way that politics has almost like a tidal wave engulfed, engulfed every aspect uh, of our public communication and discussion.
2: Well, do you do that? I mean, I don't disagree with uh, your take on things, but you're positioned within crooked media. You're I, I don't know if you're a member of the DSA, but I have seen material that they put out where they say you're a friend of the DSA. I wouldn't want to tell you not to be political. The politics are what affects change. But do you epitomize decoupling political talk from medical talk?
1: That's a really good point, uh, Mike. I'll be honest with you, right? As someone who has run for office in the past and thinks about my work in very political ways, I try to do both. On the one hand, right, a lot of these debates have become politicized and one has to deal with the facts as they are around these issues and recognize that unless we're waging a politics that does try to win the future for the facts and for the science, then we really risk losing. And on the other side, it's also being honest about about what's happening on the stage and saying, you know, I really wish these weren't political debates. And yet, if the question is whether or not we believe in science, or if the question is about whether or not we want to save the world from uh, the consequences of our burning, you know, stuff that comes out of the ground into the lungs of our kids, or if the question is about whether or not we want to protect people from a raging pandemic, I'm going to go with a vision for a world uh, where we are, in fact, doing those things. And yet and yet, I wish that we had consensus about these issues. And so it's it's almost an impossible circumstance to be engaged in. If the other side, right of the of the political discussion is rejecting basic fact, the the process of science, and the notion that we need to protect the earth and protect people from deadly things that are uh, that are being driven by our own behavior then at some point I'm going to embrace the fact that we need a politics that actually pushes against that. And at the other side, right, I really do wish it wasn't political. I really do wish we didn't talk about these things in political ways. And my own engagement with politics is in recognizing that because we were not engaging them in political ways, we saw a systematic backslide when in fact we needed aggressive movement forward on everything from investing in public health infrastructure to taking on climate change.
2: I've interviewed Canadians and people who are expert in how they do things in Canada. And what they tell me is that it's just, first of all, the climate is different in terms of politics. There's no equivalent of Fox with that sort of reach and influence. But basically, the public health officials there are so divorced, it's it would be confusing to most Canadians to think about public health and public health communications in a political context. In the same way that, I don't know what functionary of the United States, something like the red light cameras or you know, the way the roads are uh, constructed in the United States as being explicitly political. I don't know if we could get to that, but it seems like there's a pretty good lesson just across our border that handled this pandemic a lot better.
1: Yeah, Mike, that's a really good point. I, I do want to call out the meta politics here though, right? Beyond the issues of the day and the conversations that we're having about them, It's important to step back and ask why it is and how it is that all these issues became political in the first place. And a lot of that has to do with the falling away of the firewall between our politics and our economics. The minute you allow major corporations to spend money shaping the electoral playing field and lobbying politicians, the things that they do become political. And when the things that they do are at core driving everything from the failure of our public health when it comes to sugar-sweetened beverages or uh, high-fructose uh, high corn syrup to accelerating climate change when it comes to oil and gas and uh, their immense lobbying and electioneering capacity, then at some point, right, these issues will become political too. And so I think you're right. Like, I wish I could, we could go back and rebuild that firewall, but- That's what we've been talking about in the first place. And so in some respects, what those of us who believe in science and believe that we have a responsibility to protect people from the consequences of profiting off of things that ultimately hurt us, then we are now fighting on two fronts. One is to say, these aren't actually political issues at all. These are just issues of public health. And then the other is to say, well, now that this firewall is broken, you've made them political, then we have to wage a politics that at least protects us in the short term and hopefully protects us in the long term while we try and rebuild that wall. It becomes almost an impossible battle, set of battles to fight. And on the other end of it, you've got, you know, folks who are making a ton of money on a system that we know is accelerating potentially the collapse of the earth, and certainly in the short term, accelerating the poor health of of our neighbors, our loved ones, uh, and our society. Tomorrow, Dr. El-Sayed will be back and we will talk about the usual attacks on
2: big pharma that gain lots of applause at political rallies usually, but does that change given how big pharma is addressing our problems and delivering vaccines to fight the pandemic. We also engage in the all-but-impossible discussion of disentangling race from wealth when it comes to vaccination priorities. That's tomorrow on The Gist. George Schultz was old since I was young. Ronald Reagan's secretary of state died at the age of 100 over the weekend. He embodied the title public servant. Schultz worked for Dwight Eisenhower's Council of Economic Advisors. He was Nixon's Labor Secretary, Director of OMB, and Treasury Secretary. He was an intellectual and academic. He was Associate Professor of Industrial Relations at MIT, and then a professor and eventually a Dean of Industrial Relations at the University of Chicago Business School. Also, he was a tenured professor at Stanford before he even became Secretary of State. Therefore, he joked, I really don't need the revolving door of post-government employment because tenure is a pretty sweet gig. Actually, those aren't his words, the pretty sweet gig part, because it should be noted, according to an obituary in the Financial Times, quote, he was not a charismatic man and scarcely uttered a memorable phrase. Whoa. Ho, ho. well, I do think he did many memorable things and memorable things were said about him. Like when the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Joe Biden, said during confirmation in 1982, after Reagan's first secretary of state, Alexander Haig, stepped down amid turmoil.
0: You are at least as qualified intellectually, politically, morally, in every other way as any man has ever sat before us, uh, before any of our committees. But to get to the specific question, it's either a structural problem we have, or serious personality problem.
2: Now to prevent you from thinking that I'm engaged in a hagiography of Schultz, know this. Schultz was quite imperfect on some policies. He stalwartly defended, indeed implemented the Reagan administration's support of South Africa's apartheid regime. Here he is arguing with, once again, Biden. This is from a few years later, I think 1986. Biden was citing historical parallels between apartheid and the United States history and faulting the administration for continuing their support of the ruling minority white party in South Africa.
0: And then you say the fourth principle is that our policies and those of our allies ensure that we expand political liberties in the post-apartheid South Africa. Mr. Secretary, maybe it's because I come from the civil rights movement in this country. We sat there and we heard the same kind of arguments, the same exact arguments. We cannot impose from the north a solution on the south. They must work out their problems black and white together. We cannot, as a nation, expose them to the economic ravages that will come. We must consider what will happen after segregation before we eliminate segregation. My Lord. And finally. That is not an accurate parallel. Let me parallel read it. Let me read it. Because we don't say we have to consider what happens after the uh, let me read your before we end it. We have said again and again and again. That it's an abhorrent system, and I can be just as emotional as you can about that, and it needs to end. You say four principles. I assume they're equally important. You say fourth. Our policy and those of our allies should ensure an expanded political liberties in the post-apartheid South Africa are accomplished by an expansion of economic opportunities. My God, worry about that when it comes. These people are being crushed, and we're sitting here with the same kind of rhetoric. The same thing we heard. We heard go slow. We heard we have to take care of the problem afterwards. We heard we you can't have, impose. You, you are totally misconstruing
1: the testimony
0: my... that I gave. Read first. Furthermore, Senator, let me say that I hate to hear a senator of the United States calling for violence. I'm not calling That's for violence. That's what you're doing. I hate that is to hear. Exactly what you're I doing. hate to hear an administration and a Secretary of State refusing to act on a morally abhorrent point. I hate to hear this country. I'm ashamed that this country...
2: It went on for a little while longer, Biden waving around paper, getting indignant, Schultz calmly asserting that a cautious way forward was the only way. That was a fiery exchange, and on that one, Biden won, history has shown. I said it wasn't a hagiography. But let's also note that Schultz made great strides on most areas of foreign policy. He was a skilled treaty negotiator, You could argue he helped rid the world of more nuclear weapons than any man who has ever lived, and he could be seen as the architect of the foreign policy that at least coincided and, I'm going to say, actually correlated to the end of the USSR. Again, it's not a hagiography. It's not even an obit. That's not why I wanted to talk about him. Because I was thinking of George Shultz, not in terms of a eulogy, but a jumping off point. As Bloomberg columnist Jonathan Bernstein wrote, quote, The death of American statesman George P. Schultz at 100, just before the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, Well, it's hard not to see it as a symbol for everything wrong with today's Republican Party. Schultz was a good example of how a reasonably healthy party operates. Parties need governing professionals, people who actually know how to make things work after an election is won, and healthy parties look out for and promote talented people. Experience doesn't necessarily produce success, but inexperience is a serious obstacle to any administration. And beyond inexperience, this is me now, not Bernstein, I would add competence. You need to avoid incompetence, not literally cultivate it. I was thinking about Trumpism and remembering hearing an analysis of Afghanistan and the popularity of the Taliban And this person was saying, you know, the Taliban might have a good message to appeal to the people. They certainly play to the people's resentment, but all the things they stand for, all the things they promise will not make them effective leaders. The return to the 13th century caliphate, great, doesn't keep the water filtration plant running. Adherence to a strict Sharia law, a crackdown on kite flying, might get a cheer, doesn't help the electrical grid From falling apart. When all you are is anger and accusation, there is no appetite for actually running a country, no capacity to do so either. By the way, that also works with hotels and golf courses. An underrated aspect of the failure of Trumpism was that it necessarily pushed out competent people who could actually deliver material improvement to the masses. I'm talking about material improvement, not the solving of psychic wounds. I actually don't find it accurate to compare Trumpism to any ideology of the past, like conservatism or neoconservatism or even populism. We're doing Trumpism too much of a favor when we call it an ideology. It's not an idea for running a government. It's just a free-floating, free-of-governmental-solution emotion. And in this way, George Schultz offers another countervailing argument. Don't use government as a means of self-expression. Self-expression is important to people. People can still cut loose, break out of the box, be a bit rebellious. They should do so in the private realm. To this end, I submit to you my favorite fact about George P. Schultz and his end. The former Secretary of State had a tiger tattoo on his ass. Go wild, live it up. Get down with your bad self, no problem. Or maybe a bit of a problem, because I, for one, being in possession of the fact that George P. Schultz had a tiger tattoo on his ass, could think of nothing else other than George P. Schultz's tiger tattoo that dies with him as well. But now I do think of this. I think that George Schultz was a public servant through his last days. He performed his final act of public service reminding us. All now of an America where both parties were competent, and the asses of our leaders were lightly reported on, not their defining characteristic. And that's it for today's show. Shayna Roth, just producer, wants you to know that you know my Super Bowl coverage did lack the point that the key to the Chiefs' game was their banged-up offensive line, thus allowing Shaq Barrett and Jason Pierre-Paul to harass Mahomes all day. She's been going on and on about how how could I not mention that, to which GIST producer Margaret Kelly says that Mahomes' confusion wasn't so much about Tampa's blitz packages, but rather the question, how the hell did Snooki get involved in that mountain? The Nora O'Donnell mountain ad, that's what I'm talking about, ends with Snooki. Snooki gets the kicker! Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is like me, old enough to remember George Shultz, and therefore, I shall predict that on more than one occasion, she thought when hearing the name George Shultz, wait, why is the guy behind Peanuts negotiating an arms deal with the Jordanians? The gist. I don't know if it's an irony, a coincidence, or an idiocy on my part, but I do find it notable that the man with a tiger butt tattoo also looked very much like Burt Lar, the Cowardly Lion. We're Prede and thanks for listening.